Hey lovelies, before we get started, I wanted to give you a quick update on the most comfortable mask. I designed and created a breathable, comfortable, non-medical mask to get us all through this whole COVID mess. Right now, I'm fully stocked in three beautiful new fall colors, black, gray, and burgundy. Get it by going to impactfashionnyc.com and selecting mask from the main menu. I've also put together a little packet on the secrets your tailor won't tell you. These are the tips and tricks that make shopping easier and will let you know if you're being overcharged for alterations. The link to get that is in the show notes, which you can access by swiping up on the cover art. Thanks for all your support and enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. And on today's show, I talk with a pioneer in the fashion space about her career, how she created DKNY PR Girl, a game changer in social media marketing for fashion brands, and how that taste of independence led her to take the leap into her own consulting firm. Lisa Lick describes herself as your best friend who tell you when you need to tweeze your eyebrows, and it is no surprise that a communications master is able to pin herself down so perfectly. What I love about her is how she effortlessly weaves helpful career and life tidbits into her story. So listen up, you're about to learn something without even realizing it. A little kid. Um, I was sort of, you know, very entrepreneurial actually. Um, I was the kind of kid, like in second grade, I started a homework club for my friends and I would actually teach them some lessons and assign them homework and then give them stickers um, as rewards. So definitely uh, super type A, very much um, a leader from early on and someone who was always really sort of trusting of the gut and decisive. Do you think that you were always just innately had those leadership qualities or was there something that your parents did to encourage that in you? I think my parents um, and my sister and I both are very similar in this way. They very much encouraged us to have a voice. So we always pushed back, you know, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in not a good way. And we were just always able to speak our minds and ask why, which I think, you know, that innate curiosity um, ultimately is makes you a success because you're always trying to figure out a better way. Yeah. There, if you adopt the mindset of never being finished learning, of never being like, there's always more that I can learn from anybody, then you're always going to be a growing person and you'll always be on top of the next big thing. That's for sure. Yes. So how did you get into the fashion world? Well, not in a traditional way, to be honest. Um, I grew up in the 80s. I grew up with a room wallpapered with magazine editorial. I loved fashion. I loved clothes. I loved photo shoots. You know, we were not informed of creative roles. You know, our guidance counselors, in, you know, would share, you know, the jobs available were doctor, teacher, lawyer, etc. So while I loved fashion, I didn't really know that it was a job. And I never really gave much thought to how those magazine pages came to be. So I kind of went with what I was good at. And what I was good at was science. And I loved aesthetic and I loved beauty. So I thought, okay, well, if I combine those 
three things, I could maybe pursue being a plastic surgeon. So that's the path I went on and I interned for a plastic surgeon multiple summers and then I went to college and I was a neurobiology and physiology major, pre-med track, took my MCATs, did the whole thing. And then in my junior year, did a very intensive internship at a hospital with, you know, ER shifts and, and really sort of making you feel like, okay, this is what it's going to be like. And I hated it. And I was shocked because I loved it on paper and I loved the studying of it, but I didn't like it in real life. And um, also at the same time, my grandmother was living with us for 13 years. She had had a stroke and was on her decline. So I felt like... I'm in a hospital all day, it's super depressing. I come home and it's super depressing. I'm a really energetic, upbeat person and I felt like it was crushing my soul. So I sat my parents down and I was like, listen, I know you've told like 4 million people that I'm gonna be a doctor, uh, but you're gonna have to undo that because I don't wanna do this anymore. And it was a really big conversation. And of course, you know, having two different parents with two, two totally different perspectives, my mom was very much like, well, what are you going to do? And my dad was like, you'll figure it out. You know, so it was, it was funny. And of course I had no plan. So when everyone, you know, when we graduated and everyone typically goes off to Europe or travels, I buckled down, I applied for fashion internships and I got really lucky and landed one at Harper's Bazaar. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's a really great place to land. Yeah, it, it was. But, you know, it's interesting because, and I tell this story in my book, Leave Your Mark, because I was really honest. You know, I was not faking it till I made it. I, my letter was, you know, I've loved fashion my whole life. Your pages were the wallpaper in my room, but I set off you know, to be a doctor on this track and I've made a mistake and I hope you'll help me correct it. And that resonated. Yeah. Cause I, everyone in their life has made some kind of mistake, you know, in big and small things. So yeah. owning up to that is a really great way to connect to whoever's job it is to decide if you get that internship or not. Absolutely. You mentioned fake it till you make it in general. Are you a fan or not? You know, it's really funny. I, <laughs> I actually advise it to a lot of people in certain scenarios. I'm really personally not comfortable with it, but I know it is a means to an end. So I, I'm very authentic and I like to really know that I know how to do something or that I can deliver on something. So it's something I'm not comfortable with personally, but I do believe that if you fake it and you practice and you learn, ultimately you will get to the point where you actually know how to do that task or whatever it is. Yeah. That's, that's where I approach it from. I'm a big fan of fake it till you make it. Cause I think that everyone on some level is improvising everyone on some level, especially if you're in an entrepreneurial space, nobody knows what they're doing. We're all just figuring <laughs> yeah. it out as we go along, especially with everything changing so quickly. So letting go of the idea that I need to be really great at something before I set out to do it has personally been really freeing. Yeah. And also, you know, a lot of really smart people have said that, you know, if you, if you know a hundred percent of a job and you're not challenging yourself, then that's really not the right role either. So there, there needs to be an element of learning on the go so that you can continuously improve your skill set. Right. For sure. So you have this internship at Harper's Bazaar. 
How long does that last? What what is that experience like? What tell, take us behind the scenes of one of the most well-known fashion magazines in the world. Well, did you see the Double Wars Prada? Of course. Okay. So, you know, at the time I was a full-time intern, so five days a week. And, you know, that was typically magazine life starts around 10 a.m., believe it or not, in the editorial world. So 10 a.m. to probably 7 p.m. I was the first one in turning on the lights in the office and the last one to leave. I was very dedicated to the role. And unlike the Devil Wears Prada, at the time, Harper's Bazaar was led by an editor called Liz Tilbaris, who passed away uh, many years ago from ovarian cancer. And she was sort of the antithesis of what you read about um, in the industry about Anna Wintour. She was extremely um, warm and open. And even as an intern, I would be in the fashion closet organizing the accessories for what's called a run-through, where the editors come in and review what they want to shoot for the magazine. And she would come into the closet and she would say, what's your name? What do you do? You know, how do you like it here? What do you think about working at Harper's? And it was just very welcoming. So I started off in the industry with a really positive view. Of course, you know, as I went along, I've, I've of course encountered different scenarios, but it's very, it's very creative. It's very glam. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of physical labor because you're, constantly packing and unpacking things and carrying things to photo shoots but it was one of those experiences where you know you do have to pinch yourself and say like this is this is like i'm i'm in fashion like i am picking dust bunnies out of shoes to make them clean but i am in fashion and that's what i focused on yeah, that's that's also the best attitude to have with those kinds of things to really say, you know, a lot of times maybe your dream internship is not what you envisioned it to be. I did an internship at Naeem Khan. I was there for about eight months, six, oh, wow. eight months. Um, and it was a fantastic experience. And most of it was running errands. Most of it was, you know, bring this from that factory to that car to that shoot to that this like it was just running stuff around and I had the best time with it. And it was really, really great. So how did, uh, what did you do from there? How did your, how did your career progress from that first internship? So my, my intern supervisor was um, the accessories director. His name is Richard Sinnott and I still speak to him. He's a huge creative director at Michael Kors. He does all of the accessories now, but he was at Harper's for 10 years. He was, you know, you, if you can find your champions, well, first of all, if you do the work, right? And you make an impression and you find your champions, he heard about a role at Mary Claire Magazine and Accessories and put me forward and told them that if they didn't hire me, he would kill them. So <laughs> I got to interview for that role and I got the job as assistant accessories editor. So then I started, you know, my real career in fashion and I stayed on the magazine side of the business for two more years after that. And then I jumped over to corporate communications at DKNY in the late, in the late 90s. So this is where this is where things get interesting because I think this is where people really start to know you from, uh, and that is that you really pioneered this way that fashion brands marketed, uh, particularly with social media. You are the DKNY PR girl. Yes, but remember, so my career at Donna Karen spanned seventeen years. I did not start off pioneering anything. I started off packing up shoes and bags in a closet. <laughs> so I think, you know, going back to, and I think this is really, you know, the best advice I can give to anyone listening. 
always looking for the white space. So even when I started at DKNY and my role was accessories PR, public relations, the first thing I did was realize, wait, how do editors even know what the line is? We don't even have like a catalog and we call them lookbooks. We don't have a lookbook. So I created one. So always looking for the holes and how you can fill them and not wait for someone to say like, hey, can you make a lookbook? It's like, I, I realized that, that was necessary to do my job well and I just went for it. So fast forward many, many, many years and I become senior vice president of global communications. This is now 2009. I had been SVP for a couple years though. So I'm overseeing global communications, which for everyone listening, that means I'm overseeing all of the back and forth photo shoots with fashion magazines and trying to get Donna Karen and DKNY into those stories. I'm working with online editors to get stories on Donna. I'm working with celebrities to get the clothing on the red carpet. I'm producing fashion shows, events. I'm working with our global teams to make sure the brand is conveyed properly. So it's a whole huge job. And one day, you know, as a marketing team, we were sitting around talking about, we have this Facebook page, but there's this new thing called Twitter. And what are we gonna do on this platform? And being a publicist, and knowing that, you know, the Twitter handles were people's names, I thought, well, if it's at Donna Karen, the public will assume she's tweeting. And then what is she saying? And who is actually writing this for her? And is that something we want to do? And my gut was, hell no, because someone's going to get offended by something, because someone is going to assume she said it. And it just seemed like a hot mess. So it was the same time as Gossip Girl season two. And I was, I just threw out an idea. I said, well, you know, why can't it be this anonymous character? We could call her DKY PR girl. And she can share a fly in the wall view into the world of Donna Karen, um, conveying the brand in, in cool ways through her job. And everyone was kind of like, okay, that sounds cool. And of course, when we reviewed it with general counsel, which of course, everything in a corporate company is reviewed with general counsel, Lynn Yuzdan, who was the, um, the counsel at the time, was like, okay, I'm not comfortable with multiple people doing this. So Aliza, you're the only one who's going to have access to the Twitter handle and you're the only one who can tweet. Why and did that- it have to be that way? Why did it need to be isolated that way? Well, I think we saw early on in Twitter that a lot of companies, because social media was so new to them, they were handing it off to interns. And we saw at the time a lot of companies, you know, certainly in the consumer goods world, were were getting into trouble because these interns had no clue what they were doing. And then they were just sort of tweeting whatever they wanted to, but not realizing they're representing the company that they're tweeting about. So it became this really tangled web of like, you better be careful who is tweeting on behalf of your company because they really are your spokesperson. So because I was a senior vice president, Lynn knew that I wasn't going to just, you know, go off on a Saturday night and start, you know, drunk tweeting or doing something crazy. I was responsible and I was also a publicist. So she knew that I was really careful with my words and it just seemed like the best way to control it. We decided it was going to be anonymous, just like Gossip Girl. So it was represented by a fashion illustration. 
And I kid you not, I, I, it was just initiation by fire. I got on the platform and I started just experimenting with saying certain things and seeing the engagement and then doing more of what worked and doing less of what didn't work. And it just grew to be an enormous, enormous account with cult following people really trying to figure out who was the person behind the Twitter handle. And it was really kept a secret for two years until we decided to reveal. What made you make that decision to come out behind the anonymous character? Well, it really was not my idea. Um, two, two, two reasons. One, um, there was a woman, Felita Harris, who was the head of sales for Donna Karen New York, which was the collection brand. And she felt really strongly, you know, she would go into market to sell the collection and Saks would come in and Bergdorf would come in and all they wanted to talk about was who is DKYPR girl. So one day out of nowhere, she just said, I don't really understand why it needs to be anonymous anymore. Like everyone's on Twitter now. There's copycat accounts. There was Oscar PR girl. There was Hugo Boss PR girl. There was all these different PR girls. It sort of gave birth to the idea that PR people don't need to be behind the scenes. I mean, that was another really big takeaway from this. And she was like, well, maybe if you're, if you're out in the open, we can leverage it more and it can become even bigger. So that was, you know, one side of it. And then my friend Dave Kirpin, who ended up writing the forward to my book, my second edition, he, you know, I met him on Twitter and he, one day he asked me to breakfast and he also said like, you're not getting credit for what you're doing because nobody knows. And he's like, and I don't understand why you don't want credit. And I was like, because it's not about me. It's about the brand. But slowly but surely, you know, everyone was kind of like, let's just do this. So we did it. Okay. And what was that like? What was, you know, what was the reveal like? Did you enjoy being anonymous more or did you enjoy people knowing who you were? Well, I would say when I was anonymous, I was extreme, well, very funny and also at times very snarky. So the personality, there was a lot of personality there. And of course, when you reveal yourself and everybody knows now who's behind the words, it's a little bit uncomfortable because you feel quite naked. So I did in the beginning feel like, oh, I better watch it. Like people know it's me now. Not that I was doing anything bad, but you know, I was pushing boundaries for sure. Um, as far as the reveal, we decided, Felita's sister is this woman, Tracy Baker Simmons, who's uh, a producer. And we decided to shoot like a mini TV show behind the scenes of Fashion Week so people could see me in my actual job and then understand um, that I was DKY PR girl. And it's funny because um, people assume that I was some 22 year old, you know, junior PR person. And I was an executive with two kids married and completely the opposite of what they thought. But I will say on the day that I revealed the video showing me as the person behind the Twitter handle, I happened to be taking my son to see a day camp and I tweeted the video revealing myself. And then I went on this camp tour and lost all reception for four hours. <laughs> God. Yeah. So I'm assuming after four hours, your phone was, you had no messages and everything was completely quiet and you had nothing to catch up on at all. Right. So <laughs> one tweet, one tweet resulted 
in 230 million media impressions. Holy cow. <laughs> Holy cow. That is almost as many people as there are in this country. It was insane. I didn't quite realize how big of a secret it had become. And at that point, just to give you a sense, at that point, DKY PR Girl was probably around 380,000 followers organically. But of course, I was on a lot of different platforms because Instagram had come out and Tumblr was a big thing. So, it, you know, overall, the, the whole personality grew to about 1.5 million organically. So I had no budget except to draw the illustrations. My friend Dallas Shaw drew them and that was it. There was no paid anything. It was just pure growth. Wow. And one of the things you mentioned was that everyone assumed that you were some little kid, some intern, and that wasn't the case. You were far on in your career. You had a family. Why do you think it was that people assumed that you were so much younger than you were? I think it's the way that I write. Um, my personality, you know, people always ask me, you know, well, how did you create the personality for DQ My PR Girl? It's just my personality. Like I can't even take credit for having this massive strategy because I was just being myself. And I think, you know, my personality and the way that I write and even the way that my book reads, it's like, I'm your best girlfriend that you trust for right. anything. You know, I'm going to tell you when that outfit doesn't look good on you. You know, I'm going to tell you when you need to tweeze your eyebrows. Like that's, that's how I am as a friend. So I was just very real. And I think that's what resonated with people. And I think, you know, being super friendly in the space when fashion notoriously is not and very elitist and very cards close to the chest. It was very counterintuitive for a lot of people. Right. I want to take a, a, a second to pause and talk about one of my least favorite words, and that is authenticity, <laughs> because, which drives me crazy. But either way, um, when, like you said, when you started this account and when you started talking like your actual self, that is something that I think even today in some sectors of the fashion world is still frowned upon. You know, it's still kind of this hoity-toity space, but more and more it's being recognized that when brands choose to be themselves and to put their real voice out there, that's what really resonates with consumers and that's what really resonates with with followers and that's how you grow organic audiences. So if you had to give me like a golden rule for authenticity in PR and marketing on social, what would that be? Great question. I would say, first of all, you have to think about the brand DNA to start. You know, my personality does not work for every brand. Not every brand should be that way. So I think the first rule of thumb is to think about what your brand stands for and how do you want to sound? How do you want to message the consumer, the followers, the fans? And when I, you know, I did write a brand filter for DKY PR Girl, how I pictured her was very much modeled after Gossip Girl. So I pictured her very witty. I pictured her snarky. I pictured her being accessible yet aspirational. So I had all of these words that I would write down and really created sort of the guardrails of how I would write this character. Because I did think of it as a character when I started and not myself. And when you create a really strong brand filter and you question yourself, so when you're creating a content strategy and you're thinking to yourself, does this fit within the filter that I've created? That is really how you know. If it doesn't fit, you know, the, the brand is not supposed to talk about everything. So you have to really trust the brand filter and, and really abide by that. 
And that is how I think brands should approach it. So yes, you're right. There are a lot of brands and not just in fashion. There are a lot of brands who believe social media is one way communication. I think it's called social media to be social and it's two way communication. And the more engagement a brand makes, the more consumers will be loyal to that brand. And it worked really well for me. So I think every strategy is bespoke. And, and certainly in, with my clients, every strategy is bespoke. But that said, at the end of the day, the consumer wants to feel like you have their best interest and you are servicing them. And there is a degree, and certainly right now, of empathy that needs to be applied to the strategy. For sure. For sure. Are you familiar with building a story brand? Building a story brand? Yeah. It's a book by Donald Miller. Mm-hmm. It's so just, it's a book that basically what he does is he says, if you, if you formulate your marketing strategy based on how movie scripts are written to be constantly telling stories. Um, And the key point that I took away from it, at least was that a lot of brands position themselves as the central character. Um, A lot of brands are like, I am here and I will solve all of your problems. But the the second that you go from worrying about when your business will, how your business will succeed to how your customers will succeed, that's when things really start clicking. Because if you keep other people in the center of it, then they feel empowered and then they are connecting with you on a, on a deeper level. And that's what really drives consumer behavior. Oh, I so agree. And I love that. Yeah. It's a really great book. I'll send you a link to it. So, um, when you're at DKNY, assuming that I have my timeline right, you start working on a book called Leave Your Mark. What, yeah. So what, why? What, you know, you have this great career in fashion. You're, you're doing well. You are the DKNY PR girl. Everything's going great. Why, what makes you think maybe we need to put this in writing? <laughs> Such a good question. Thanks. I, I didn't think. I didn't. I got a call one day. I was sitting at my desk. It was 2013. And the girl came on and she said, hi, my name is Amanda Englander. I'm an editor at Grand Central Publishing. I said, hi, how are you? She's like, I follow you on Twitter. I read your blog. And I think there's a book in here somewhere. And I said, thank you so much for reading my work and for following. I definitely do not want to write a book. (laughs) And she was like, why? And I said, because I have a full-time career. I basically was doing, DKMPR Girl became a second full-time job. It was 24-7. So I was doing my real job, and then I was doing the social media job on top of it. And I had two little kids. Like, there was no way. And, you know, to be very honest, I was kind of like, the DKMPR Girl story is real. It's a, you know, I represent a company. This is a company entity. I don't own those followers. That's not, you know, that, that is not mine. And I'm not going to write a book and go through that process for the company. And so I declined. And she was relentless. And we are actually really good friends now. And it's so funny because now that I know her so well, I'm like, oh, my God, you are literally a dog with a bone. She, you know, would just call me like every other week. And she'd say, like, you know, have you given some thought to what we spoke about? I'm like, yeah. And I said, no. Like, I don't even understand. Like, do you want to like be friends or like, why, why are we having this conversation? Why are you still calling me? And she was like, just, she's like, write a page. I'm like, about what? What am I going to write about? And she was like, anything you want. And by the way, for a publisher to give you like 
total carte blanche and not have to pitch a proposal is insane. So I decided that I had been giving out a ton of advice on Twitter under the hashtags PR 101, Life 101. I was coaching people via DM. I was speaking to people all around the world about their careers. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I can make this a career mentorship. So I started... I gave in, I started writing a few pages. And of course I have to start at the beginning of my story because I'm a stream of consciousness writer. So I just kind of start right there. And I send her like three or four pages and she sends them back completely marked up in red and asks me to make changes, like update this, expand this, fix this. And I'm like, one, I feel like I'm in school because now I got graded and two, I realized she was really coaching me through creating a proposal that she could then submit, which is what happened. <laughs> that's, that's kind of awesome and also awful at the same time. Well, it's just, it's just doesn't happen. Right. Like, it really doesn't happen. Right. That, that's just not how books get made. That's just not how things no, it's happen. Not. So I was very lucky and honored and um, Grand Central has been an amazing partner for me. So what happened when the book came out? Well, I would say, so they gave me six months to write 75,000 words, which of course you have no idea what that means when you're not a writer. Yeah. I was just going to ask you to translate that. How big of a book is that? So it's, I think it's around 300 pages and okay. I really wanted time to edit. So I asked my husband to calculate if we think about this in terms of words, because I was thinking in terms of tweets, like how many, I, I tweet hundreds of times a day. So how many words is that? Like, certainly I have a lot to say. And we figured out that it was around 596 words a day. So I created an Excel tracking sheet and I was like, okay, you can do 600 words a day, no big deal. And I would um, track my progress every day. I would not tweet Thursday nights because I would always live tweet scandal with the cast. But <laughs> Ultimately, I finished it in three months and I wrote only between like 9, 9 p.m. and 1 a.m. because I really didn't want it to interfere with my kids on the weekends and certainly I was at work during the day. So that was kind of my time. Um, when it came out, you know, I would say that I created a marketing and communication strategy for it like I would my brand and it was, it was very solid. <laughs> I'm sure. No, having, having been witness to a lot of your work, I'm sure that it was really, really solid. So you, you, you come out with this book. This is while you're still at DKNY, right? Yes. So eventually you do make the leap and you leave DKNY and now you have your own consulting firm and leave your mark as a book and a podcast. And it's this whole other ecosystem. And you, you did have to take this big leap of, leaving essentially you own your own business now and while you were coming in with a lot of background and a lot of experience and a huge audience already that's not a steady salary it's always going to fluctuate there's always going to be things that that happen so what was the transition out of DKNY like and what was the process of making that decision sure so the book came out in May 2015 and I immediately took two weeks vacation to do the press for the book so I went to London and I went to Canada and did television and, you know, interviews, et cetera. And there was a sense of, well, first of all, I should say getting permission to write the book 
and getting the book approved by my company was a massive undertaking because Donna Karen was owned by LVMH at the time. And I'm telling a story about their brand, right? So as, as part of the book, not the whole book. I just want to interject and say that for some, for anyone who doesn't know, LVMH is a international conglomerate that owns tons of brands. The LV is Louis Vuitton, and um, and it's it's a you're talking about an an incredibly large company, and you had to I'm sure go through their approval process. Yes, and they read the book like 50 times and would comment back on certain sections. And and the truth was, I was very clear. You know, I can tell the same story and say Company X because it's my story, right? So I, I don't need to even say the brand name if they're not comfortable, but we ended up agreeing that it was, it was just great press for them, so why not? Um, so I go on this press tour and I get my taste of being my own person, right? Because at that point, you have to understand, DQMPR girl was so big, I would go to a party and someone would introduce me and say, this is DQMPR girl, and I would have to say, actually, my name is Eliza. Wow. So it, it completely took over my entire identity, which has positives and negatives. So when the book came out, it was my first taste of being myself and having something that I created for myself. And that felt really good. And then totally coincidentally in timing, in June that same year, we got a new CEO and the entire company changed. So my mentor and boss stepped down, Donna Karen stepped down as the chief designer. And I was left there with my team like, oh my God, this is a totally different place. And I did feel, I'm always the kind of, like even in college, you know, you study, especially as pre-med, you know, you're never done studying, right? But I would always look for like a good stopping point that would make me feel like, okay, I've done enough and now I can stop. And I kind of thought, well, wow, is this my stopping point? So I decided that it was, and I gave notice um, in June or probably July actually. And I told them, listen, I can stay till the end of the year. I'm not going to another company. I'm going to try it on my own for a while and see how it goes. So I did that. And January 1st, um, 2016, I woke up that morning and I was like, oh my God, this is a whole new world. And I had to start figuring out how to build a consulting business. Um, but I honestly did that for 10 months. And at 10 months, I was like, I don't think I'm good at this. And I really took stock of what I had accomplished in the 10 months and thought to myself, you know what? Not everyone's meant to be an entrepreneur. And I wrote an article about this for Forbes and I decided to go back in house and be head of global marketing and communications for a brand called Alice and Olivia. So I did that for two and a half years. And then last March, 2019, I decided I got that creative bug again and I decided I need to do something for myself. And that's when I decided to launch the Leave Your Mark podcast. Which I love, by the way. The Leave Your Mark podcast is absolutely fantastic. Because I think that there's something really special of, about listening to someone who you can tell knows what they're talking about. Oh, thank you. You know, there's something, uh, listen, there are plenty of podcasts out there. And there's something that you can tell that you have been through the ringer, that you know 
what it is that you're doing. Um, and just in the questions that you ask and in the conversations that you're asking, like all of those are just, it's, it's a good, it's a good vibe. It's also, it's, it's, it feels like exactly like you were saying, like your best girlfriend, that's what your podcast feel like. They feel like your best girlfriend. When, um, when you started the podcast, what was it that you, aside from feeding your own creative energy, what was it that you wanted to accomplish? I wanted the podcast to continue the sort of lessons of leave your mark. So leave your mark is it's land your dream job, kill it in your career, rock social media. So it very heavy on creating your own personal brand. And in my mind, the demographic for all of that was really young professionals, even college age, but certainly young professionals. I wanted the podcast to be much broader than that. But at the same time, and, and super diverse as far as who's on it, it's not just fashion by any means. And by the way, the book is not for just people in fashion either. I wanted the advice to be actionable. I think a lot of times when you listen to super successful people on podcasts, like you know, How I Built This or any, you know, pick one you want to think about, you're, you, you kind of walk away and it's like super inspiring, but at the same time also deflating because you're like, well, that's great for that person, but I, I can't build that. Like, I'm not going to be able to build that. So my guests are really successful and really dynamic and really inspiring, but I really like to boil down really tactical advice. So when you leave an episode, you can actually like employ some of that advice and, and actually make immediate changes. And that is really my goal. And the feedback I've gotten, that's exactly what I've been able to accomplish because you walk away thinking like, all right, I'm going to actually do those three things I just heard about. And that's, that's what I'm proud of because I want it to be something that actually helps people in their own careers. Yeah, I, to- I, can, I can feel that intention from every episode and having heard you articulate it, it makes perfect sense. And you really do get those actionable um, those actionable steps from every from every episode, and there are some great ones. The what is something that you see a lot of either small businesses or entrepreneurs? What is like the 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 biggest PR or marketing mistake that you see that if you could wave a magic wand, you would fix this for everyone? <laughs> well, I think a lot of brands just they go on automatic pilot, right, and they go with what they believe is best practice and they kind of stay in this status quo environment where they're not really willing to innovate or think outside the box or really try new things and I think the brands that are willing to test and make mistakes and learn are the ones that are really doing well I think a lot of a lot of organizations there's so many layers they're kind of stuck in their ways they do things a certain way it works why would we change it and I just don't think in this day and age that's how you succeed I think you have to be constantly evolving and I'll give you a specific lesson from PR you know in PR we always say my boss and my mentor Patty would always say we're only as good as our last credit So I, you know, Sunday night would be like the Golden Globes. And if we dressed people for the Golden Globes, I'd walk into work Monday morning. I'd feel like a rock star. We got all this press. We're amazing. And it would last for that day. And then Tuesday would roll around and it would be all washed away like it never happened. 
And Tuesday, I would walk into the office thinking, okay, what's my next trick? And that's how I've lived my entire career. Like I'm never happy with any success for more than one day, if not even half a day. And some people might be like, well, that's so sad. Like, why can't you like enjoy success? Because I think that if you enjoy success for too long, you get comfortable and you start coasting and thinking like you know everything. And the truth of the matter is that's how your competitors beat you. So I am constantly trying to push myself to be bigger, better, smarter every single day. And I really don't like I'm listening like even to your questions and, and, you know, you're so kind about my career, but I am like not that impressed with myself. Like I, I honestly think that I have so much more to do and so much more to learn and I do not have anything figured out whatsoever. Well, you figured out a, a few things and I'm glad that our, re our listeners got the opportunity to listen to a couple of those things today. This was, <laughs> this was fantastic. This is such a, a great peek behind the curtain. By the way, you are one of my favorite follows on Instagram. Just, oh, it's it's always you. it's always fun it's always on point and by the way if anyone is interested in nothing more than great clothes follow Eliza because her <laughs> wardrobe is fantastic <laughs> thank you <laughs> to end off can you tell me if somebody wants to uh be in touch with you or to uh learn more from you where can they go sure so elizalick.com you can sign up for my newsletter uh instagram is elizalickxo Twitter is Aliza Licht. I'm on LinkedIn. I have a, a LinkedIn subscription newsletter as well on there. The podcast is Leave Your Mark in Apple and Spotify and every other platform you listen to podcasts. And really simply, my email is askaliza at alizalick.com and I respond to everyone. So reach out and say hi. That sounds great. And I'm going to link all of that in the show notes. The last question that I want to ask you, Aliza, is what I ask everyone who comes on the show. And that is to you, Aliza Licht, in your personal life, in your professional life, in the way that you move through the world, what does it mean to you to make an impact? For me to make an impact is to um, leave people better than when they came to me. I am certainly someone who mentors people all the time. I do it through, you know, people reach out, they've read the book, they've listened to the podcast, they have questions, they're going through their own career journeys, good, bad, and different. And, you know, I love helping people. And for me, for someone to write back to me or DM me and say like that advice helped me, you know, negotiate my next salary or land a job or deal with a bully boss, whatever the problem is, you know, that to me is, it's, I think it's my natural calling. It's what makes me feel the most satisfied. Wow. Thank you so much for coming on today, Lisa. Really oh my God. It. Thank you Ricky, for having me. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Aliza, all of her links are in the show notes, along with any other items we mentioned in our conversation. There you'll also find links to the most comfortable mask and at-home activities perfect for quarantine, some of which are free, all of which are high fashion. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art or going to impactfashionnyc.com. I also feel the need to mention that there are approximately 328 million people in this country, so the wild guess I took during this interview was way off, but whatever. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help more people hear it, leave a review or a quick rating. It'll make my day. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rift Yitzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.